Iowa everywhere. All right, guys, we have a brand new podcast for you today with my main man, Sage Rosenfels, former NFL quarterback. A quick announcement. We'll talk more about this here in the coming weeks, but we are rebranding the Rosen Bloom show. It is now going to be the Sage Rosenfels experience because that's really what that show has been. Sage is just talking with all the people he has met over the course of his crazy life and he's letting us all inside of it and it's really fun to watch i've known sage for a really long time i really really love him like a brother he's an interesting cat and i'm glad that we can give him this outlet and i'm glad that he can give you guys a look into you know what his life is like and today we have a super awesome guest. Sage will introduce him to you, but his name is Maurice Smith. He is the executive director of the National Football League Players Association, otherwise known as the NFLPA. Massive job, super important guy. We get him here on Super Bowl week on Iowa Everywhere. Freaking awesome. Here it is, the first episode of the Sage Rosenfels Experience. Welcome, everybody, to the Sage Rosenfels Experience uh, on the Iowa Everywhere Network. I have a special, special guest today, and it comes in a really a, a great time in the NFL season. I have the executive director of the National Football League Players Association. That's a lot of words there. A lot of words. Larry Smith uh, is with us. I'm just going to call him D. Everyone just calls him D. It's way, way easier than DeMaurice. And before I get to asking you a bunch of questions, because I have a lot of questions for you. It's been 10 years since I've sat in those meetings. And you guys <laughs> give us updates on what's going on with the CPA yeah. and our benefits and this and that. I'd like to uh, give a little intro of how I met you. And that actually goes back to 2000 when I was drafted. Yep. Gene Upshaw was the executive director uh, of the NFLPA in your position. He's a player coming out of college, of course. I, I knew the name Gene Upshaw, great uh, 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 Raider, uh, yep. Oakland Raider. Maybe it was LA Raiders, I'm not sure, but uh, he was a great Raider back in the day. But, uh, you know, was this executive director, and, and he passed away. And uh, obviously, they did a search for a new director. So 2009, um, there's this – maybe it started in 08. Not really sure. Right. You probably know better right. than me. But the search happens and, you know, here are all the candidates and agents are putting their name in the hat and, and coaches, agents putting their name in the hat and lawyers through the NFL and all these people I really don't know. Uh, and we're going to put all of our trust and faith of roughly 1,600 to 2,000 players into this one person. Um, and then as the names funnel down and, and, and how it works with the players is you have two representatives who go to these meetings and they get a free Hawaii trip or they used to, uh, yep. and they sort of represent what the, what the team has to say. So there is a vote. Um, you are unanimous. I'm not, I'm not saying every player in the NFL voted for you, but at the end of the day, it's always <laughs> good to be unanimous when you're uh, in, in, in a union and you were voted in to be yep. our executive director since 2009. And, uh, and you are still the, uh, the executive director today. Still, still. And uh, I have the ulcer to prove it. Um, you know, I had more hair when I met you back in 2009. So did I, so did I. <laughs> yeah, but you still look good. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to keep it together just a little bit. But yeah, it's hard to believe that's uh, that's 14 years. Um, uh, it'll be 15 in March of 24. You know, I've I told the executive committee back in 20 that this is going to be my last term. 
Um, you know, Gene, you know, I never met Gene, but the the way that I came into the job, you know, the former executive director, you know, not being with us, there was a huge labor battle, you know, really on the horizon, kind of an existential moment for, yeah. for the union. Um, and having 18 months to get ready for that um, was just one of the worst things I, I've gone through in my life. Just dead honest. Yeah. Um, well, you got thrown to the fire. You, you came in here and we were we were you said 18 months, a year, two years away from what we knew was going to be this big battle. The yeah. the league had grown leaps and bounds. My rookie salary uh, in 2001 was 209 uh, was the rookie salary. That number's around like eight or nine hundred thousand today. Right. Um, and at the time, I remember, I believe the league was something around the 10 to $11 billion a year business. Yep. All the teams together, yep. team contracts, all of it. And you you threw at us this number of $25 million, I think it was. You said, you know, just so you guys know that the, the NFL owners, their goal is 20 or not million, $25 billion by a certain year. And I'm yep. like, they're expecting this thing to more than double in like the next 10 years. And of yep. course, with that, the salaries, with that, the benefits, with that, just the whole thing. And sure enough, it pretty much has actually, for the owner's perspective, their, the value of their franchises have probably tripled, uh, oh, you know, uh, in that time. Easily. Look, I mean, franchise values, you know, not only NFL values, but, but franchise value for almost every professional sports team has probably been a 5X, 4X, 5X since 2009. I mean, you you look at, I mean, and we'd watch the shows, we watched Ted Lasso, where I don't know if you watched the new show with Ryan Reynolds and the, you know, he's bought the small uh, 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 soccer team in, in, um, in, in England. But, you know, franchise values for teams are, are such unicorn purchases that um, it, it, it generates a consistent monetary value. You look at the, the IP of the players, you know, whether their name, image, and likeness, it's perpetual. And so you, you look at those things. And I mean, I look at the way that, uh, look, the, the Washington team, you know, if it goes on sale, will probably fetch a six, seven billion dollar price tag for that team. And we're all paying for that, by the way, because supposedly Jeff Bezos is going to buy it. So we've yeah. all we all have, have have been a part well, of. The don't hold your breath on that one. You, you you know you know more than me. Let's just say, but but think about it. They're they're gonna and and you know every now and then I like to talk about you know really franchise values and 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 it's sort of this unicorn way of looking at it. Um, the the you know the Denver team just recently sold for about five five and a half. Um, the Washington team is going to be at least a billion, if not $2 billion over that sale price. But here's the kicker. The, the Washington team ranks 32nd in ticket sales. 32nd. So, you know, we all sit around and we, you know, we're taught to, to apply kind of the, the linear business rationale of, you know, what's your EBITDA? What's your, your consistent amount of incoming revenue? The teams share an equal share of the television revenue. The Washington team is 32nd in, in ticket revenue, but yet they're going to outprice another team that does better on their incoming revenue. And it's only because these teams have such a intrinsic unicorn-like value and they only go on the market 
every now and then um, teams in big market cities for some reason fetch more. But um, it's it's an interesting phenomenon, especially when you factor in who is not allowed to buy an NFL team. It's not a free market, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a Saudi sheik, at least up until now, has never been able to buy a team. So what does someone with Saudi money, you know, you look at what they've done to disrupt the market in um, in the PGA, for good or for bad. Well, in, in European soccer. Same thing. Teams. And according to my son, who follows European soccer, has ruined the game over there because he's, 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 uh, they have just unlimited amounts of money and it became, becomes a weird imbalance all over the place. Right. And, and But think about that unlimited amount of money impacting the market for teams, uh, NFL teams. The Washington team would be would be a $25 billion purchase for someone who wanted to buy it, right? If they had unlimited funds. So, you know, what I try to focus our players on is don't get hung up about franchise value because it's not linear. Um, you know, you've heard the speeches when, you know, I came to your teams and bored you for, you know, an hour and a half with, with boring stuff. Um, I was, I was actually interested because I was like counting every dollar that you tell me I was going to get when I was (laughs) playing football and I wanted to be like, okay, I'm going to get this much in my pension, (laughs) this much with my health insurance, all these things. So I was actually super intrigued by, by your conversation. Well, which is why, you know, we focus on, okay, what is the total amount of revenue that we make in the national football league? Thanks to what you and, and your fellow players used to do and still do on the field. And what's our fair share and how do we keep our fair share? And to your point in 2011, when the, the league you know, brought this war to the players, um, the owners wanted to get rid of our pensions and they wanted to get rid of um, you know, the, the things that really uh, matter for players after their careers are over. You know, in addition to playing two extra games for free and taking a 20% pay cut, other than that, the deal on the table for the offers uh, from the owners was fantastic. I mean, I'm, I'm just stunned, you know, Sage, why you didn't take that deal right off, you know, just, just D go sign that. That sounds fantastic. Um, so that was the war, you know, the war was over whether we're going to keep our pensions and the war was whether we were going to give uh 20% back. And, and, you know, the two extra games was a, was a big issue, not, you know, uh, yes, a big issue over how much more work that was, but, you know, remember, we used to play 12 games in the National Football League and moved to 14. Yeah. Then it moved from 14 to 16. And what very few people realize is when the league added those two games in, in three successive moves, they did not increase the player share of revenue at all. So literally, we went from 12 games to 16 games sharing the same amount of the pie, which I always thought was not fair, right? So, um, you know, we took the right away from the league to increase games without giving us more money. Yeah. And um, that, you know, we you fast forward to, to 2020, um, you know, think about this. You're one of the few people that, that I talk to that actually, <laughs> that actually lives in this frame. In 2020, the National Football League bought that 17th game 
for approximately $1.5 billion. And it was a game that they had free in 2011. Interesting. Interesting. Well, it's been, it's been 13 years now, 12, 13 years since you've been in that position. Yeah. I got sort of a two-part question. Sure. Looking back, what is the thing you're most proud of, mm. of your work with the, with the Players Union? And the second part of the question is, not what you're least proud of, but what are you looking? What when you look back and you go, man, I wish we could have accomplished that. Yeah, most most proud is going to be a kind of a macro, um, kind of a macro answer. You, you know, in 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 2011, 2009 to 2011, you, you know how crazy the search was for this job, and um, I, I think knowing that the players. Um, kind of shut the world out and said, you know, all the agents who were in the hopper or all the former players who were in the hopper, or um, at least in our case, you know, we, we even had one guy who was sort of working for the league at the time in the hopper. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm most proud that a group of players came together, you know, kind of shut out all of the noise and made a decision um, that they thought was in their best interest and, and putting their faith in a guy who's not really a football guy. And and I think, you know, looking at that fight, you know, where the fight was about, you know, really gutting the union, you know, could the NFL gut sort of the strength of the union? I was most proud about that. Um, you know, our, the, the, the things that um, I mean, think about the things, the way the world looked in sports in 2009, in particular, um, on the on the forefront of health and safety. I mean, you grew up in a world where you um, watched, you know, yourself and your teammates were doing two a days, sometimes three a days, um, all the way through college and all the way through the pros. Let, let me tell you real quick before you get to yeah, 2001, Marty Schottenheimer, Marty Ball, Washington. Yep. 2002, Dave Wanstead, who was like a Jimmy Johnson disciple. So it's sort of a collegiate mindset. Miami, two-a-days for, I don't know, 17 straight days. And maybe we had like a Sunday off somewhere in there in 98-degree heat. Yeah. Uh, banging all the time. Yeah. Hitting, hitting, full pads, oh, full pads, full pads, full pads. And then as I look and I see what it is now, it's like, wow, completely different. And so much better. And yet the product is still fantastic. 100%. If not better. If, if not better, because, and again, you, you and I deal with, you know, sort of the, the throwback people. Oh my gosh, you know, old time football, yada, yada, yada. Well, this is a business and the system that we had that existed before 2011, I would refer to as a gauntlet system. And the gauntlet was if you somehow survived everything you just mentioned, you got to make an NFL roster. And you and I, if we sat down and had a little bit of time, we could come up with hundreds of people who didn't survive the gauntlet. And and our business shouldn't be a gauntlet system, right? And so, you know, whether it was not only not only who didn't survive, but like maybe didn't make a team or bounced around a couple, but like literally made almost no money. Done. Bodies. Uh, it's like they've been through 10 NFL seasons. Broken. Guys are just broken. I mean, training camp would just break people down. And and that, you know, giving a coach an unfettered 
discretion about how they manage things. You know, again, from a guy coming in from the outside, I had so many, you know, assumptions about how the National Football League worked, you know, until I started diving into it during the search process. But, you know, you, you look at, you know, the way any major corporation runs or, or particularly probably a better example is how a corporation runs that that is successful with franchises. You know, it's same, right? It's just same, same, same. The idea that the National Football League in your entire career could be dictated by the way one coach decides to do something in team A versus the way a coach could do something in team B. And to your point, the team B coach could decide that it's a practice that's not a gauntlet system. And as a result, you might get one more season or two more season before your body breaks down as opposed to being drafted to, to team A where a coach decides that, you know, everything has to be, you know, junction road football. And to your point, all of those people fall out, their bodies are broken and they have shorter careers than people in team A. Well, in what scenario is that fair for the players? So, you know, the, the, the long way of saying it, the, the thing I'm most proud of is we have a different mindset now and, and in the same way that that Gene Upshaw and Ed Garvey fought the battle of free agency, um, I think that we bought uh, or fought and, and won the battle of treating players like people yeah. and having consistent rules so that it just wasn't grotesquely unfair. Um, for you know, for, me, for yeah. me, going from, again, Schottenheimer, Wanstead, Saban, and then right. I'm agent, I go to Houston, Gary Kubiak, and that changed my view of all of it. Gary Kubiak, training camp was very challenging, but one, let's just start. He was a quarterback in the National Football League. He's coming from a different mindset. Right. Um, in, when he had come from Denver and or San Francisco, uh, even before that, going back to, uh, you know, the Kevin Seifert days and, and of course, Mike Shanahan, his boss in, in, in Denver. When the season started, we never wore pads. We wore pads for one third of a practice on a Thursday. You had a blitz drill, a little inside right. running drill, and that was it. He felt you could get just as good a work done without beating the crap out of each other. Other coaches I was around, it was like full on Wednesday, full on Thursday. And if you didn't play well the previous week, Friday, we're going to toughen you up and we're going right. to go full pads on Friday too. We might even have a scrimmage. Right. And, and you know, I look at that though is, as you've you've already gone through, and again, this is you know not to get too far down the road on on you know my criticisms of of the NCAA, but you've already survived that NCAA gauntlet, right? So I mean, the the, the National Football League benefits from getting fully trained workers who show up on day one ready to do the job. This is not. This is not the steel mill or the coal mine where everybody is on some sort of apprentice track. And then you hope that the, the apprentice um, learns a skill and then they move on. And there's a certain amount of, of loss leader for the company training their new employees. No, no, no. All of our workers come to this business fully formed, fully trained to do the job on day one and to have a system that then puts them back in another gauntlet makes no sense because coaches have a much longer career than the players. 
and and I get it. And and I love, you know, sort of that feel good moment about, you know, the coaches say that they're here to train men and make them stronger people. I, I mean, I've never seen a coach's evaluation at the end of the year by an owner that was predicated on, you know, how well did you turn out good men? Well, how well did you keep them safe? What was your injury rate? How many of your group made it through the season without a significant injury? No. I think think the way Kubiak looked at it, and I discussed it with him, is – you know, he's trying to create a team for the long term. So the the more that he can have guys on the team that don't just last for two or three seasons, yeah. that he can um, he knows they're going to show up on game day. He knows they're going to give everything they have on game day. They're going to know how to hit. They've been they're thirty years old at this point, but he wants them to be in their thirties because now they have all of that knowledge that now he can use for game planning. He doesn't have to worry about it. He'd rather have an older team with a lot of knowledge than just a bunch of young guys who just right. beat each other up. Well, and 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 look, I, I know, you know, and as you know, we've talked about this before, I, I know virtually nothing about football, right? And 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 part of that I, I've tried to 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 cultivate in a way because I do think weirdly it helps me do my job better. Um, not to get sort of sucked into, you know, everything that's sort of, you know, football world, but under under what scenario would we want to perpetuate um, a system where one person has an outsized ability to dictate your entire career in your chosen profession? Hmm. I wouldn't want that if I was a law firm. I wouldn't want that if if I was a if I was at a company. But the one thing that we, you know, we have to admit is, you know, on the labor management paradigm, labor, labor has a very difficult time dictating how management wants to get the job done. Mm. So the way that I think about it is fine. Coaches will coach their teams. Owners will will own their teams. But we're going to change the philosophy from our guys coming to to do football to our guys coming to do work. And so, you know, when I got to those team meetings, I just talked about a safe working environment. I mean, I don't know anything about a football field. I don't know anything about, you know, plays, but what do we want? We want a safe playing environment. We want to make sure that the owners are held accountable to a safe working conditions. And to the extent um, labor has the right to bargain over wages, hours and working conditions, um, we're going to come at this in a fairly hard-nosed way about wages, hours, and working conditions. So you're going to have a work day, and when your work day ends, it's over. <laughs> yeah. if there, there's going to be one padded practice during the, the regular season. There's not going to be any more padded practices after week 12 or 13. There's not going to be two-a-days anymore. And, and, you know, the one thing that I wish, you know, you talk about the things that I you know wish I had back. Um, when when I came in, you know, one of the things that had had, you know, evolved or devolved over the years is the the creep into a player's offseason. And um, and look, you work really, really hard for those, you know, 16 games, 17 games that you're playing. Um, I was a firm believer after looking at all of the data about the importance of rest and recovery. 
which you know <laughs> wasn't really a thing a lot of people talked about back, back then. But the idea of giving players um, an offseason and, and the way that I started thinking about it, because I, I sort of stay in sort of the academic world, um, I wanted to to do our best to grab spring semester, right? And football ends in January, February. Um, formal football doesn't come back until August. That's a, that's a spring semester where um, – I want to create space for our guys to heal, but also space for them to go back to school, learn a trade, do whatever you want to do. Um, I wish we, um, you know, we made, we made a decision to, um, to, to make players understand that off season was voluntary. Right. And, you know, that, that both the mission creep has come back and sort of that player desire to be in camp for OTAs has come back in a way that I wish I would have foot stomped a little bit more from 2011 until 2000 and until where we are now. Um, you know, look, again, I don't, I know fans will take this the wrong way, but um, I never cared whether your team won or lost. I, I, I still don't. I mean, I want you to get more out of football than football gets out of you. That that's all I care about. We but, all love football. Football loves nobody. That's, that's, a, that's a great line. Junior, no, junior, no, no. junior say I used to say that we all love the NFL, but the NFL loves nobody. Hundred percent. And so, you know, I look at our guys now, and 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 I, we have these constant, you know, conversations. Why are our Why are you as men showing up to work for free? For OTAs. I mean, if the coach and the team decides that they want to pay Sage Rosenfeld to come to OTAs, well then, okay, you have a decision to make, but you, you never took a day off from training. None of our guys take weeks off from training. Why are we, why are, why do we have this system where there's this invitation, voluntary opportunity to come to to camp during the offseason and work for free i think it's because of the 53 guys on a roster about 40 35 to 40 of them are truly worried about making the team getting the contract extension playing the league for as long as possible there's about 12 guys who have they got 20 million in the bank they got 50 yeah. million in the bank they got 100 million dollars in the bank and so for everybody else it's this battle to make sure the team likes me, make sure the coaches like me. And so if you ask me to do something and it helps me make the team, yeah, how high do you want me to jump? You yeah, know? and you know, and, and I get that. And when we had these discussions, we've had them for two or three years, you know, I, I do get that. You know what we found though? It's the guys who are making the 20 and $30 million. They're the guys who want to show up the most. And, and then when you look at it statistically, and I'm just a dork, I mean, I, that's all I do. I just, I'm a lawyer and I run regression analysis and I read boring things all day. You know that every year, the same 35, 40 guys are going to make the team no matter what. And yet those are the guys <laughs> who always want to go to OTAs. And so, you know, we, then, then the conversation flips back. It's like, well, D we should have banned OTAs. It's like, well, you, you can't ban something that's voluntary, right? So 
the the thing that I always try to try to impress on our players is our ability to um, um, engage in our in our own our own agency to kind of dictate our own destiny. But look, look, you know, you and I have had tons of great conversations, you know, on the sideline, crazy conversations, which is always which always great. But look what's happening across the country. I mean, nurses are going on strike because they find their backs up against the wall. Teachers are going on strike because they find their backs um, are against the wall. Um, I look at OTAs and 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 coaches and owners asking our players to do something for free yeah as an intrusion on our freedom and and our decisions to make things um to to dictate our own destiny and and again i get it players can make their own decisions but you know what would happen if um like take for example you know players have have expressed a desire to play on grass fields instead of turf right um, we can't dictate that, you know, as a matter of, of management. Turf is relatively safe. It's not tremendously uh, less safe than than grass. Therefore, we don't have a labor law hook. We don't have an OSHA hook um, to, to demand that. But if players really, really wanted to just all play on grass, you know what I would tell them or have told them? Don't go to OTAs. Deny management something that they want. What happens? You're bargaining over something that is free to get something that you want, right? And and I mean, as I, speaking of that, since, since we're t- having this conversation about unions, yeah, okay, because um, unions are, an, are are a tricky topic in the United States of America. All right, so unions yeah. are some people think a necessity and do a lot of positive things. Other people yeah. see as a great hindrance, um, and they are. Uh, taken advantage of. Talk to me about yeah. you talk about teachers and and, and nurses. Uh, you know, they, those are those, those are groups that we all want them to do all these things, yet we continually try to undercut them in every way from actually doing their jobs. But talk to me about why you feel now you're representing not all millionaires, but mostly yeah. millionaires against <laughs> billionaires, management versus labor. Talk to me about yeah. why you feel like unions in general are important. You look, I mean, statistically, um, all you have to look at, and, and, and by the way, there's a myriad of, of things you can look at throughout our country. But the one thing that I always remind everybody is um, the shrinking middle class is absolutely um, related in a direct linear way to the decline of unions. That's just true, Right. I mean, I grew up in a very comfortable middle-class home. There was a time when all of us believed that if you could have a job that paid for minimum wage and your partner um, had a job that, that paid minimum wage, that you could af- still afford a house. You could afford to send your kids to school. And one day when work was over, um, you would have enough of a nest egg um, in order to live out your life. And it wasn't going to be extravagant and it wasn't going to be, um, you know, life and styles of the, of the rich and famous, but you, no one on the planet can tell me that there was a time when, when every American believed that it was more likely than not 
that I was going to have, I was going to be able to live a comfortable life, have two kids, a good house, college for my kids and a decent, a decent retirement. If you follow the plan, if you, if you worked 40 plus hours a week, did all those things. Right. hundred percent. The opportunity, the opportunity was there for you and your, and your family. Well, and, and that it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't a pipe dream. Right. I mean, the only thing I would say is yes, there was an opportunity, but I would argue that there was almost um, an expectation. Why? Because you saw that with your parents. Right. And your parents. And again, I didn't grow up in a, in a rich family, but it was comfortable. My, both my parents worked for the federal government. They they started their careers there. They ended their careers there. They didn't make huge amounts of money, but they were able to send both their kids to college. And I saw my parents who left the Jim Crow South where things were much worse, um, have jobs that 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 could provide for their family. We we don't. We not only have that expectation today, I would argue that most Americans don't even have that opportunity today, right? And so you, you look at yourself, we, we look at the, where the country is now from a, you know, a large scale economic standpoint, um, are we still generating a mass gross domestic product? Yes. Are our companies and shareholders richer now than they were back then? Yes. Are our companies and corporations doing better now on a profit margin than we were doing then? Yes. So there isn't a problem with the economy. There's a problem with where the money is going that is resulting from the labor of the people who are doing their work. How how the management and the labor have worked together, and where the distribution of the revenues have gone, hundred percent, have I mean, gone to the haves and, and the have-nots. It's it's harder now than it ever was it, before. It's, well, it's it, I think it's impossible now given our trajectory, right? I mean, you know, you you have you have big box companies like like Walmart and 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 others where we know that their profits are through the roof, but we know that they're also not giving the people who work there sustainable 40 hour weeks, right? What do they do? They're giving a lot of people 20 and 30 hours a week. Why? Because they don't have to pay benefits. So now what do you have to do if you're working 20 20 hours a week? You've got to get another job that allows you to work 20 hours a week. Now that's a 40 hour week, but you're still not getting benefits. And or go apl- apply for government benefits. Hundred percent. Well, and, the, and then, uh, but the what do they mostly what ends do? Up do? Being, ends up being Walmart's uh, insurance plan, basically. Let, let uh, me. Let me. Especially let, when it comes to healthcare, right? Yeah. You know, like one more thing, I would say on that, just to close this out. Yeah. The last thing I would say about unions in America um, is to remind people who believe that unions inhibit growth. And I gave a speech to the chamber of commerce and let's just say between you and me, it'll be the last speech that I gave to the chamber of commerce, by the way. But I left the chamber of commerce with this. Um, every year we add about somewhere between 600 and $800 million of revenue in the national football league. Every year we, we have, played NFL football through wars. We've played NFL football through um, recessions. We've played NFL football through COVID. And the only thing that we've done in this business is we are consistently 85 of the top 100 shows in America. 
And this year's revenue will be what? $19 billion with a fully unionized workforce. Interesting. Speaking of that union, uh, I, I, to give the listeners, I get when I'm on the street or I'm somewhere and say, hey, how long did you play in the NFL? I'm like, oh, 11 years, 12, 12 years, you know, training camps. You get, you get pension, right? I'm like, well, yeah, but like, I think they think that I'm getting a check for a half a million dollars the day I retire from the National Football Like, Can you give the listeners here general, very quickly, cliff notes yeah, yeah. of what the general sort of pension, yeah. 401k, annuity, HRA, health reimbursement account, what those sort of various things are? Yeah. So there's y- y- our pensions are are structured into um, three buckets. You know, there is your um, Taft Hartley pension. Um, you play. You, yeah. You play two years and three games. You vest for that. Um, at the end, your pension is governed by the amount of money or, or it's, a, it's a formula, the amount of money um, that, that you're being paid. It's a formula, and then that money is paid out to you. You become eligible to take it at 45, I think, if, you, if it's early. But you know the minute you touch an early pension, you lose a tremendous amount of, of, yes. um, of the value. Um, and I would argue that our, our NFL pensions are, are, are by far the best pensions um, um, in sport. Um, and the longer you play, the higher that number Correct. Is. Correct. Yeah, it's a certain amount um, of money per year you're in the league forever, right? Yeah. And then your second bucket is your 401k. So our players get a two to one match on their 401k. Simplest way that that I can explain it to the public is the way I tell players: if you max out your 401k for the three years that you are playing NFL football, that that three-year tranche is matched two to one by the owners for $1 you put in, they put in, they put in two. Um, If you don't touch that money until you are 55, your pension will be worth approximately 1.6. Your 401k will be worth approximately 1.6 million. And then we have a second annuity plan that, that layers on top of that. Um, and then, you know, from there, um, your HRA, um, uh, your line of duty, all of those other things are um, ways in which we are trying to provide benefits for our players for when they retire. Now, there's a Gene Upshaw disability plan. All right. It's, it's named after him. Is there something that we could come up with, like, say, lifetime premium payments, uh, insurance premium payments? That is the Demory Smith lifetime <laughs> insurance premium payments. Well, is there something that you'd love to have your name on that, like, I got this passed through the owners oh, and it's something that you would truly believe? Because as players, I, I was just talking to a, a, a couple of old colleagues, my old teammates, and we talked about of all of these things. The, the health uh, care aspect of it yeah, is sure. really the thing that's sort of the biggest pain and the biggest shocker to us yeah. Uh, yeah. as we exit the league. Yeah. And that, I mean, that is, look, that is, that's a, that's a very tough thing to handle because here's the problem. There is no healthcare insurance company who is ever going to write a lifetime healthcare insurance premium for players. Just not going to happen. Uh, the last time we looked at it, um, if we could find an insurance company to write it, it would the premiums would be approximately two and a half to three billion dollars a year. 
So my question to you is, is, you know, as a player, are players going to vote for that $3 billion to come off the salary cap? Well, that's always the issue is that, uh, that the current players never think they're going to be 50 years old or 60 years old. Like it's just not, it's yeah. not but they do know, but it's not, it's yeah. not in their mindset. Yeah. They're, they're so focused on the now and maximizing the value right. contract. Now it's just hard to go, Hey, someday I'm going to be 65 years old trying to pay insurance benefits. Right. But, but, but remember Sage, and, and this is the important, you know, piece of it, you know, um, football's a job, not a career. Football's a job, not a career. Our, our people, our young men retire, average age is what, 28 when yeah. you retire. So again, I look at it from a union standpoint. Um, you know, I, I was a lawyer at Latham. Do I get lifetime health care? No. Do coal miners get lifetime health care? No. Teachers get lifetime health care? No. Um, what we are focused on sometimes, and I think sometimes people talk past each other, when we say lifetime healthcare, um, remember that doesn't mean injury care, right? So, you know, you get hurt on the job at a coal mine um, and you have a, a healthcare policy through the, the coal mine company. Does your um, insurance, your health insurance cover the injury that you got at the coal mine? Answer is no workers compensation does hmm. right what does co- workers compensation provide that coal miner lifetime health care for the injuries that he suffers at work do you know what workers comp provides to nfl players lifetime health care for the injuries they suffer at work so the the way in which you know we really need to do a better job getting our guys to file for workers comp because workers' comp provides you with lifetime health care for every injury you ever had. Mm. Um, and, and, and by the way, that, that lifetime health care is tax-free. It's not off the salary cap. And it's also not um, a taxpayer benefit. So we force the teams to buy workers' comp insurance to cover every injury. So, for example... You know, our workers' comp lawyer in in Denver played in the National Football League for, I think, 12 years, was a a left tackle. He's had three hip replacements since he left the league um, as a player. He's never paid a dime out of pocket. Hmm. So, you know, I don't want anything named after me other than just the exit door um, (laughs) as I'm walking out the door. But, you know, when, when we think about that healthcare cost for our injuries, that's something that keeps me awake at night because our guys aren't filing for workers' there's, comp. There's sort of confusion in it, right? And it just well, not- there's, you know, Sage, man, I, you know, and again, I, I love NFL players. And I say that with almost a wink and a nod because they've, they've caused me unmeasurable, you know, ulcers. But I do love them. But, but think about this, you know, I know we're running out of time. I always use this example. Um, New Jersey, uh, the New York Jets, New York Giants, um, both training camps, um, facilities are in New Jersey. Um, New Jersey has one of the best workers comp laws in the country with respect to life, lifetime healthcare. The Giants historical rate 
of filing for workers' comp is somewhere around the 60-70% mark. For whatever reason, the Jets players are like 30 to 40 percentage points lower than that on the rates by which they file for workers' comp. As someone who played for the Giants, uh, played for five teams, that does not surprise me. I think the Giants do a great job of being sort of pro player. At least it feels like that to me. Uh, they keep people in the organization for 20 years, 25 years, 30 years. And the process is just, they've been there, they've seen it, they've done it. Now that they may not always win on the field, yeah, <laughs> uh, but there is a stability there. Um, that I think is is very helpful to the players. And I can just tell with the emails that I get and the contacts that I get from them that things are just, they have their sort of their system down much more than other teams. I, I, I have one more question for you. Yeah, yep. I know your time is very limited and very important. Damar Hamlin. Yep. That situation this year. Yeah. When I was playing, we would, you see crazy hits. You see okay. crazy injuries. You yeah. see grotesque things. You see guys completely knocked out and you hope they wake up. Yep. We used to talk about, you know, at some point, somebody will die on the field in a National Football League game. Not in, not in, a, in, a, in a hospital. Right. On the field because it's such a violent game. Right. Talk to me about your thoughts about how that situation was handled. I'm sort of putting you on the spot here. Yeah. How that situation was handled, where it looked like the teams were going to go out, but the coaches – decide this is we're not doing this it seemed like to me that's what it looked like hey guys yeah we're, actually, not, we're not the coat that they were warming up on the sidelines and yeah actually the coach comes across and say i, I think we should take a break yeah Talk actually, about that, that, that whole process that you guys have i'm sure thought about in case something tragic like this happens in the future yeah look um i, I don't admittedly i don't watch a lot of football um, I was watching that game when, when it happened <clears throat> after about the first six or seven minutes, I called Roger at home, um, and, and said, you know, right around that 10 minute mark, I said, this game needs to be canceled. Um, you know, I didn't know what was going on, but you know, again, you and I've spent a lot of time around players. We know, we knew that their reaction on the field was not normal. And, um, um, uh, you know, I don't really ever talk about conversations that, that happen between Roger and I, because I think you have to kind of keep those confidential for a lot of reasons. But let's just say that I made it pointedly clear that this wasn't a player decision. This shouldn't be a coach's decision. Uh, this is a leadership decision that something horrible has happened, something completely unusual. has. Worst, it's worst case scenario. It's the worst case scenario and that the game should be canceled. The players went back in the room, back into the, the, um, their respective locker rooms. Uh, thankfully we had one member of the executive committee on the Bengals team. I talked to him from the locker room. Um, and then the players came together and said that they're not playing this game. That was it. It wasn't a coach's decision. Um, the players actually decided before the league decided. Um, that they were going to cancel the game. And then I got a call back from Roger a little bit later and said that they, you know, decided to, to cancel the game. And it was a consultation with the NFLPA. But, um, you know, look, I, I, I'm a, obviously a player's guy. Um, and, and I think that, that um, you know, this is a union where we want the players to make a decision. On that night, that's not a player's call. Um, and that's a leadership. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be but it was. 
it, it ended up being. But, um, you know, to me, that's just a leadership call, right? Of um, <laughs> it's just a game. Yeah. It's, it's a call of, let's look at the big picture. $19 billion a year. This just, huge circus that we have. Let, let's just let game, just, at the end of the day, is not going to make or break anything. No, I, and I, the players is, were, were so distraught. Uh, and yet the players, the ones who had to take the leadership role. That's a that's just a humanity call. Right. I mean, it's not it's not even complicated. It's just um, no. And, and we're going to go on and, you know, everybody's smart enough and there's enough lawyers in the room and there's enough football ops in the room. Everybody's going to figure out when, if, where the game gets played, whatever. Um, that, that was just a humanity call of given what, what had happened on the field, it was a moral decision to end the game. And, um, you know, I've never shied away from those calls because I, I think that's, you know, a leadership job comes with, you know, I, I would argue if you're doing a great job, a leadership job comes with more downs than ups um, because you you should be weighed down by the responsibility of your job. Um, and on a night like that, the only thing that we are there to triumph is humanity. Easy call. Too much is given, much is expected. 1,000%. To Maurice, I sincerely appreciate uh, your candidness. Thanks for coming on Thank you. Uh, my podcast. I will see you in Phoenix, Arizona. I, okay. It'll be warmer there uh, than, than Washington. It'll be warmer there than Omaha, where I live. So uh, I sincerely appreciate it and can't wait to see you down in, down in Phoenix. You too, brother. Take care. Be safe. All right. Thanks, Steve. Iowa everywhere.